You're listening to L-Town Radio, the Livingston Library Podcast. Welcome, dear listener, and thank you for tuning in to the September 2023 episode of L-Town Radio, the Livingston Public Library podcast. I'm Joe from the Adult Services and Acquisitions Department, and coming up in this episode, Hung Mei will share a special song for Classical Music Month, Archana will tell us about some of the great programs on our September calendar, and Jessica will highlight some of the best books headed to our shelves this fall, as well as fill us in on this month's senior happening and book club meetings. But first... I want to talk about the extraordinary life of a man named Ludwig Muhlfelder, who lived here in Livingston for nearly 50 years. He was an Army veteran serving in World War II in General Patton's Third Army and participating in the Battle of the Bulge. After the war, he worked in the Astroelectronics Division of RCA, where he helped design jet engines and satellites and was awarded 16 U.S. patents involving the stabilization of spacecraft between 1976 and 1990. In addition, Ludwig Muhlfelder served as the president of Livingston's Temple Emmanuel for three years and sat on the board of trustees for the North American governing body of Reform Judaism. But Ludwig was not born here in Livingston or even in the United States. He was born in Seoul, Germany, on June 13, 1924. Though Seoul was a town devoted primarily to manufacturing weapons, Ludwig's father, Julius, made his living in the leather shoe business, eventually owning his own company. Meanwhile, Ludwig's mother, Mina, worked as a nanny for the family of a factory owner. When he was four years old, Ludwig and his family welcomed the arrival of his younger sister, Ellen. For much of Ludwig's early childhood, it seemed like the Muhlenbergs had a lovely and promising future ahead of them. But then, in the early 1930s, Ludwig started noticing some disturbing developments in his homeland. Even at his young age, he could sense that trouble was brewing. High rates of unemployment created great turmoil, while a number of political parties littered the streets with propaganda in their attempts to win the support of the people. One of those parties, of course, was the Nazi Party, led by Adolf Hitler, whose incendiary and anti-Semitic speeches started contaminating the country's airwaves. Eventually, flags emblazoned with Nazi swastikas were flying all over Seoul and other parts of Germany. Ludwig recalled some of his parents' friends being quite fearful of Hitler's increasing popularity, though most Jews in Germany seemed to think it was merely a passing phase. Even as Hitler was appointed Chancellor of Germany, as anti-Semitism became sanctioned by the state, and as more and more Christian citizens began distancing themselves from their Jewish neighbors. Over the next few years, Hitler and the Nazis only became more powerful, expanding their control through Europe and tightening their grip on the rights of Jewish people, until one fateful night in November of 1938, when Ludwig and his family truly realized the full extent of the danger they were in. In Ludwig's autobiography, titled Because I Survived, Published in English by Shengold Books in the year 2000, Ludwig wrote, In early November, 
1938. A German consular official in Paris was killed by a senseless act of desperation by a 17-year-old Jewish youth named Herschel Greenspan, whose parents were deported by Germany, with 17,000 others because of their Polish origin, but whose homeland, Poland, would not readmit them because of their religion, thus relegating these unfortunate people to the no-man's land at the border. We, as Jews living in Nazi Germany, were nervous about the potential consequences of Greenspan's act. Our fears were justified for the event that took place on the night of November 9th and 10th, 1938, exceeded our wildest and most pessimistic premonitions. Kristallnacht, as it subsequently became known because of the Nazi shattering of the windows in Jewish homes and business establishments, was the end of the beginning and the beginning of the end of the destruction of German and, as it developed, European Jewry by the Nazi machine. From 1933 until this point, the German government had instituted policies and laws to make the country cleansed of Jews. Although individual acts of intimidation, arrests, and even murders had taken place, the primary thrust of the German anti-Semitic action during the first five Nazi years rested on vile propaganda, escalating discrimination, and eliminationist directives. With the advent of Kristallnacht, this initial phase reached its conclusion, and we saw the beginning of government-initiated, organized, and implemented terror, the beginning of the end. Neither my father nor my sister was in Seoul during those early November days. Ellen was spending her time in a home for Jewish children in southwestern Germany, and my father was on a final closeout business trip. Because of the ominous situation, my mother permitted me to sleep in father's bed. The fire sirens started to wail during the night, an unusual event for our small town. When I looked out of the window, someone in the street shouted, the Jewish church is burning, turning my head in the direction of the synagogue, which was about half a mile from our home. I saw the dark sky lit by the reflection of the flames of hate, a Teutonic pyre of our house of worship. This glowing sky appeared as an evil illumination not only of the darkness of this night, but of the darkness of the time. Shortly thereafter, we discerned loud knocking and the alarm-like ringing of our doorbell. Three or four brown or black-shirted stormtroopers invaded our home in search of my father. I sat up on the bed as my mother explained that he is out of town for business reasons. With that, one of these uniformed Germans asked me, How old are you? Fourteen, I replied as calmly as I could. We'll get you the next time, the Nazi commented before leaving. Little did I comprehend at that intense moment the full implication of the stormtrooper's remark. Within a few years, the Nazis would kill about one and a half million Jewish children as part of Germany's Holocaust activities. The stormtrooper meant what he said. Quiet returned, an eerie quiet. The flames that consumed our synagogue must have died down, for the night sky became dark again. But neither quiet nor darkness enabled sleep. We had been violated beyond belief. In retrospect, Mother and I were still fortunate that the Nazis had not laid hands on us or on the contents of our apartment. Subsequent reports indicated that numerous other German and Austrian Jews did not fare this well. Glass was shattered in many places. People were beaten. Furnishings and even sometimes human beings 
were tossed out of windows. Slowly, daylight returned with the dawn of November 10th. We heard that all Jewish boys and men between the ages of 16 and 70, including Uncle Max, had been arrested by SA and SS troops during the night and transported to Buchenwald concentration camp. Of course, in this emotional upheaval, our thoughts and concerns focused immediately on my father. Where is he? Was he arrested while traveling? Did the Nazis harm him? Is he still alive? We did not have the slightest idea on that day. My mother was courageous and resolute. I accompanied her to inspect father's business establishment, where nothing had been touched. Then she walked alone to the police station and inquired in the Gestapo offices about my father's whereabouts and fate. They could not, or would not, give her any information. Mother returned home very upset and began to sit at a living room window next to our antique desk. She deluded herself in the belief that by sitting there and viewing the street, father would somehow appear and return to our midst. And so she sat there in the night of November 10th through 11th, 1938, and I kept her company during these long, dark hours. I realized that this effort, though understandable, was useless, but I did not express that thought to her. The next day and the day after, she repeated her Gestapo inquiries and finally was informed that father had indeed been arrested on his journey and transported to Buchenwald. Later, father told us that he was apprehended in his hotel room during the Kristallnacht action. The Nazi stormtroopers checked every room in their search for Jews. When they knocked on his door with the standard question, he replied, yes, I am a Jew. They drove him in his own car to nearby Buchenwald. As he stepped out, dressed as a businessman in hat and coat, he was struck on the head with a fist or a blunt instrument with the shouted admonition that he should remove his hat when stepping on, quote, holy ground. Since that time, my father's hearing was impaired. It appears incongruous that this infamous concentration camp was located so close to Weimar. This city of culture had been associated in prior times with such famous names of literature, music, art, and philosophy as Johann Sebastian Bach, Johann Wolfgang von Goethe, Johann C. Friedrich von Schiller, Franz Liszt, Walter Gropius, and Martin Luther. Now its vicinity has become a symbol of man's inhumanity to man. We were relieved to know about father's whereabouts, although it was no great comfort to learn that he was in Buchenwald. At least, and not insignificantly, he was alive, and there was hope to eventually see him again. Then, after what seemed to be three long weeks, my father was one of the first Kristallnacht prisoners to return to Sul from Buchenwald. He looked haggard and unkempt, reminding me of Uncle Lothar's appearance after he was released from Dachau. His head was shaven like that of a convict, and his face was covered by a stubbly beard, quite a contrast to his usually meticulous appearance. But he was alive our father and husband, and we were infinitely thankful that he was once again in our midst. I'll talk more about the extraordinary life of Ludwig Mühlfelder, including how he made it safely to America with the help of an Oscar-winning film producer. But first, 
let's take a break and hear from Archana to tell us about some of the great programs we have coming up at the Livingston Library in September. Hello listeners, I'm Archana Chiplunkar and I'm delighted to share with you highlights of the adult programs coming up in September. A library outranks any other one thing a community can do to benefit its people. It is a never-failing spring in the desert, said 19th century industrialist and philanthropist Andrew Carnegie. September is Library Card Sign-Up Month, and it's an opportune time to remember Carnegie, whose donations of more than $40 million between 1886 and 1919 paid for 1,0689 new library buildings in communities large and small across America. Join speaker Rick Feingold on Monday, September 11th at 7 p.m. for Andrew Carnegie, From Steel to the Building of Libraries, as he shows how Carnegie amassed an enormous fortune in the steel industry and then became a major philanthropist. He gave away $350 million, nearly 90% of the fortune he accumulated through the railroad and steel industries. During the late 19th century, when steel was first used as a railroad track, Carnegie perfected low-cost steel production. The Carnegie Steelworks in Homestead, Pennsylvania employed men producing steel under primitive industrial working conditions. Rick will feature the 1892 strike at Homestead, which pitted the Pinkerton Detective Agency against the steel workers, ending with 10 deaths. After Carnegie sold his steel company to J.P. Morgan, he donated his money to build over 2,500 libraries all over the world that educated and entertained millions. Many still exist today. Rick's talk includes the first libraries Carnegie funded beginning in Scotland and Pittsburgh, as well as Carnegie libraries in New Jersey and New York. The second evening program I would like to highlight is Literary Diamonds, Baseball in Fiction and Poetry, and that is on September 18th at 7pm. From dime novels to postmodern parables, from Casey at the Bat to the Haiku, the game, the sport, the business of baseball, our national pastime, has provided writers with themes, plots, myths, characters, and language. It is widely believed that baseball, more than any other sport, is the writer's game. Join presenter Keith Danish as he shows how creative writers of fiction and poetry have used baseball as a metaphor for America, its motley, kaleidoscopic populace, and its changing role in the world. Just as Moby Dick is more than a guide to whaling, Keith's talk will reveal how a story or poem set on or around the baseball diamond can help us to understand the meaning of life, its delights, and more often its sorrows. Also coming up in September are a couple of health and wellness programs. Are you tired of feeling sluggish, bloated, and uncomfortable after meals? Forget about crash diets, expensive powders, and quick fixes. Join us for an interactive workshop called Bye Bye Belly Bloat on September 13th at 2pm to discuss five simple steps to reduce bloating, feel lighter and more energized and learn how to arm yourself with strategies focused on your long-term health and well-being. Presenter Elizabeth Girward, a certified integrative nutrition health coach, will help you discover the root causes of belly bloat and share practical tips and strategies for reducing bloating and promoting healthy digestion. You will understand how small changes can have a big impact on your overall health and well-being. Simple mindfulness techniques to help reduce stress and promote relaxation will be suggested. Then on September 21st at 2pm, we present Understanding Migraines, Unraveling the Mystery of Headaches. 
Migraine is a neurological disorder characterized by recurrent moderate to severe headaches. More than just a headache, migraines involve a complex interplay of brain chemicals and nerves. Migraine affects around 1 in every 5 women and around 1 in every 15 men and attacks can be debilitating and affect daily life. Join Dr. Noori Napchan, founder and medical director of Brain Wellness MD, located in New Jersey, and board certified in neurology, headache and pain medicine for a presentation on this common medical condition. His talk will cover symptoms and phases of migraine attack and mention common triggers like certain foods, strong odors, lights and stress. He will give an understanding of the neurological processes behind migraines and share medical and non-medical approaches to managing them, coping strategies and support networks to help one live and function well with migraines will also be covered. Looking forward to seeing you all at these programs next month. Thank you. Thank you very much, Archana. And that's not all that the Livingston Library has planned on our program calendar for September. Here to tell us about this month's Senior Happening concert, as well as our book club meetings, here's the head of our Adult Services and Acquisitions Department, Jessica. Hello, L-Town Radio listeners. Are you as excited for fall programming here at the Livingston Public Library as we are? September marks the return of many wonderful and exciting programs. On September 15th, seniors can look forward to the return of our monthly Senior Happening Program, where the New Jersey Symphony will present Broadway tunes. Registration is required for Senior Happening and can be done in person at the library, by phone, or on the library's website. Our book clubs, which took a little break for August, are also returning this month with Crime Time, on September 11th, Bookish Vibes on September 6th, Let's Talk About Books on September 8th, and Thrilling Tales on September 14th. We also have many crafts, even a Bridgerton-inspired tea party on September 21st, many lectures, and other events that you can look forward to. To see the full listing, please stop by the library and pick up our monthly program brochure, or head on over to our website, livingstonlibrary.org, to see our entire calendar. We can't wait to see you at the library. We hope to see you soon. Bye. Thank you, Jessica. We'll hear from Jessica again in a bit to tell us about some of the best new books coming out in September. And of course, we still have more about the life of Ludwig Mühlfelder coming up. But right now, we're going to welcome Hung Mei here to play a song in celebration of Classical Music Month. September is the National Classic Music Month. When we think about classic music composers, we think about Beethoven, who is widely regarded as the greatest composer who ever lived. For Elise was one of the most beautiful pieces he wrote. This piece was never published during Beethoven's lifetime, and it wasn't ever discovered until 40 years after his death. As a result, no one's quite sure who the Elise of the title was. Evidence suggests that Elise was a close friend of Beethoven and probably an important figure in his life. Now let's enjoy for Elise, piano played by Long Long.
Thanks so much for that, Hongmei. Fair Release is actually one of my most favorite classical music pieces, and that was such a beautiful rendition of it. All right, so let's get back to the extraordinary life of Ludwig Mühlfelder. When we last left off, Ludwig and his family were shaken by the events of Kristallnacht and by his father Julius's experience in the Buchenwald concentration camp. And while the Mühlfelders were relieved that he and that Julius had been released and returned home, they realized they could no longer feel safe in their homeland and that they needed to flee Europe to the United States as soon as possible. Unfortunately, when the Mühlfelders went to the U.S. consulate, they were told that only Julius would be allowed to immigrate to America and he would have to hold a job that could support an entire family to demonstrate that the Mühlfelders wouldn't be a burden on the U.S. government. Only after this was established would the U.S. consider admitting Ludwig, Ellen, and Mina as well. But their choice was made clear. Either Julius could go to America alone, or the entire family would remain in Germany indefinitely. Given only 15 minutes to decide, the Mühlfelders agreed that Julius should go to the U.S. so that at least one of them could escape the Nazis. He left in early 1939. Soon after that, Ludwig, Ellen, and Mina were forced to leave their home and relocate to what was called a Jew house with other Jews who were being persecuted by the Nazis. The three Mühlfelders lived there for many months until after Hitler invaded Poland in September of 1939, so long that they had begun to lose hope that they'd ever make it to America and see Julius again. That is, until they received an unexpected gift from a man named Carl Lemley. In the 1920s and 30s, Carl Lemley was famous as the founder of Universal Studios and as the pioneering producer of iconic Hollywood films like Dracula, Frankenstein, and the Oscar-winning All Quiet on the Western Front. Lemley also happened to have a very large family and earned a reputation for filling over 70 positions at his studios with sons, nephews, and other relatives, leading the poet Ogden Nash to quip, Uncle Carl Lemley has a very large family. But as the Nazis rose to power in Lemley's birthplace of Germany, the producer began employing nepotism for a much nobler purpose. He spent millions of dollars of his fortune to pay for visas and affidavits that would allow many of his distant relatives to emigrate from Germany and move to safety in the U.S. Fortunately for the Mühlfelders, Carl Lemley's aunt happened to be Ludwig's grandmother. And in November of 1939, the Mühlfelders were finally able to escape the nightmare of Nazi Germany and set sail for the United States of America. Here's Ludwig himself in a clip from the 2019 documentary titled Carl Lemley, directed by Jason Friedman. I myself did get another uh, affidavit from Carl Lemley. He put a million dollars on escrow in a Swiss bank account for friends or members of family, and he was a distant relative of ours, Carl Lemley, to guarantee, again, that they would not become a public charge. That visa was a passport of life. Without that, I would have been killed. And so would my mother and my sister. Ludwig went on to live a long and eventful life in America. His family moved to Newark, though within a few years, Ludwig volunteered to return to Europe, this time as part of the U.S. Army, where he fought under General Patton 
and helped defeat the Nazis at the Battle of the Bulge. After the war, he married Beatrice Bravman, and in 1956 the couple moved to Livingston, where they lived for nearly 50 years, starting a family with three children and five grandchildren. In 1995, he published his autobiography in German, which he then translated into English and published in 2000, and which I read from earlier. At this point, I'd like to read another excerpt, this time from the book's final chapter titled Retrospection and Reflection. The flight from Nazi Germany to the safety of America's shores was one of the high points of my life. Almost as if torn from the grave, I regained my freedom and my future. The significance of this event was more than obvious to me already as a 15-year-old boy, and the appreciation of this fortuitous rescue has been in my conscience throughout my days. After only a few short years, I was in the U.S. Armed Forces, participating in the monumental struggle to defeat the greatest evil of that time and the history of humankind. My participation in the Second World War gave me considerable satisfaction, for it was not only my obvious duty as a U.S. citizen and my expression of gratitude for giving refuge to my family, but it also resonated with a personal and religious desire to help rescue the remnants of European Jewry that I was able to survive the dangers of the Second World War, and that even without sustaining any bodily injury, is included with fervent thanks in my daily prayers. There is hope for the future, in spite of some occasional setbacks. This is not just an empty wish of mine, but is based on a conviction that the widespread dissemination via modern communication means of yesteryear's often tragic history and today's still too frequent resort toward violence will teach the human family a lesson that will not go unnoticed, that cannot and will not be ignored. I cannot believe that humanity will continue to tolerate the resort to violence and atrocities that still plague so many parts of our globe. Whether these actions are conducted in the name of nationalism, fundamentalism, or tribalism, humanity must and eventually will come to its senses by recognizing the futility of violent deeds. These senseless and brutal actions are often committed against innocent and defenseless people in the maddening delusion to resolve disputes and conflicting interests. Education, communication, and self-interest will win the day in the end. I believe in God because of the miracle of evolutionary creation. I believe in a better tomorrow because I survived. Ludwig passed away on January 9th, 2004, at the age of 79. Hopefully, though, his story and his faith in a better tomorrow will live on here in Livingston and beyond for many more years to come. At this time, I'd like to credit the sources I consulted for this episode, which are A, uh, a Life Saved, A World Changed, an article by Stella Katsaputis Varkanis uh, that featured an interview with Ludwig's daughter, Leslie, and it appeared in the spring 2021 issue of Lafayette Magazine, published by Lafayette College in Easton, Pennsylvania. Next, an article from jewishcurrents.org titled Carl Lemley, 
posted on June 8, 2012. I also got information from an article on Forbes.com titled, This Filmmaker Fought U.S. Consulates to to Save the Jews from Nazis, written by Stuart Anderson and published on February 14, 2023. That one also pointed me toward Jason Friedman's film about Carl Lemley that we heard from earlier. And once again, I read some excerpts from Ludwig Muehlfelder's autobiography titled Because I Survived. And if you'd like to read more about his fascinating life story, the book is available as part of the collection in our local history archive. Speak to one of our reference librarians for more information. Of course, Ludwig's book is far from the only great read you can get here at the Livingston Library. So before we wrap up, let's hear from Jessica once again to preview some of the great new books headed to our shelves in September. Hello, library readers. Are you just as excited for new fall reads as we are? Here is a sampling of what books you can look forward to checking out from the Livingston Public Library this September. Please note that descriptions are taken from the publishers. Amazing Grace Adams by Fran Littlewood, September 5th. Bernadette Eleanor Olympian, Rosie Ove. Meet Amazing Grace Adams, the funny, touching, unforgettable story of an invisible everywoman pushed to the brink who finally pushes back. Holly by Stephen King, September 5th. Holly Gibney, one of Stephen King's most compelling and ingeniously resourceful characters, returns in this thrilling novel to solve the gruesome truth behind multiple disappearances in a Midwestern town. The River We Remember by William Kruger, September 5th. In 1958, a small Minnesota town is rocked by the murder of its most powerful citizen, pouring fresh fuel on old grievances in this dazzling standalone novel from the New York Times bestselling author of the expansive, atmospheric American saga, This Tenderland. Code read by Vince Flynn, September 12th, Mitch Schrapp returns to make a mortal enemy of Russia in this high-octane and up-to-the-minute installment in the number one New York Times best-selling series from one of the best thriller writers on the planet. The Traitor Among Us by Anne Perry, September 12th. Elena Standish investigates the murder of a fellow MI6 agent in the country estate of one of England's most influential families in this gripping mystery from the New York Times bestselling author Anne Perry. Normal Rules Don't Apply by Kate Atkinson, September 12th. A dazzling collection of 11 interconnected stories from the best-selling award-winning author of Shrines of Gaiety and Life After Life, with everything that readers love about her novels, the inventiveness, the verbal felicity, the sharp observations on human nature, and the deeply satisfying emotional wallop. Armor of Light by Ken Follett, September 26. The long-awaited sequel to A Column of Fire, The Armor of Light heralds a new dawn for Kingsbridge, England, where progress clashes with tradition, class struggles push into every part of society, and war in Europe engulfs the entire continent and beyond. Killing the Witches by Bill O'Reilly, September 26. With over 19 million copies in print and a remarkable record of number one New York Times, Wall Street Journal, USA Today, and Publishers Weekly bestsellers, Bill O'Reilly's Killing series is the most popular series of narrative histories in the world. Which of these books are you looking forward to reading the most? We can't wait to see you down at the Livingston Library. See you soon. Bye. Well, that'll do it for this episode of L-Town Radio. Thanks to Archana, Jessica, and Hong Mei for your contributions. And of course, thank you, dear listener, for tuning in. 
I hope you'll tune in again next month. Remember, you can listen to and subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Podcasts, and Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on social media on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. You can read our daily blog at livingstonlibrary.org slash blog. And you can visit our website, livingstonlibrary.org, to search our catalog, browse our events calendar, or use our many, many digital resources 24 hours a day. Of course, we're also open seven days a week for all your librarying needs, so I hope you'll come down and see us in person as well. Until next time, stay safe, stay kind, and stay curious.